Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of This Week in AML. I'm John Byrne, Chair of the AMLRS Advisory Board. And I'm Elliot Berman, our Creative Director. We are excited to welcome you to the This Week in AML podcast, where we explore key news and developments in the global financial crime prevention community. Hi, this is Elliot Berman from AML RightSource. John Byrne and I are taking the New Year's weekend off, but wanted to share with you an archive edition of This Week in AML. We've selected the FATF updates its guidance on the real estate sector from July of this year. We think you'll find it worthy of another listen, and we'll be back next year, actually next week, on January 6th. So we hope you have wonderful holidays and a happy new year. See you next year. Hi, John. How are you this week? I'm good, Elliot. Uh, things are going well. We're uh, close in, in the U.S. Congress to the August recess, and I know we've talked about uh, the enablers uh, provisions in NDAA. Our understanding is that the Senate may pick that up in September. Obviously, there there's been a couple of hearings, but um, uh, it's not it's not the slow days of summer like some people say and. One of the other areas that I know we both we chatted about before we jumped on this is FATF continues to produce some uh, pretty compelling information and reports. And I saw the most recent one, and that's the risk-based approach guidance for the real estate sector, something that FinCEN is actively seeking uh, information on for a potential regulation. So it's, a, it's on everybody's mind, the gaps in the real estate industry over time in terms of using real estate for the movement of illicit funds. So this comes out, this comes at a pretty, pretty important time. Yes. Uh, I saw that and I, um, it, it's interesting and it's uh, again, it's along the lines of a lot of the types of guidance that FATF has put out. The, the thing that caught my eye is that um, uh, their initial guidance was in this space was put out in 2008 Right. And, and then last summer, they, you know, in their sort of setting their agenda, they said, yes, you know, uh, the part all the the nations who are involved said, you know, it's time to update the risk based guidance uh, to the real estate sector. And so here, you know, a year later, um, they put out uh, updated guidance. And uh, so I I'm very I'm always impressed with the fact that when FATF says they're going to do something, you usually get it done. <laughs> Yeah, look, there's, there's a lot in here, but a couple of things we'd highlight. It's, it's uh, almost an 80-page document, so obviously when folks get the opportunity to take a look at it, and part of it is based on the response of the mutual evaluations of jurisdictions and where those evaluations determine there still are both gaps and areas of, uh, uh, of uh, challenge, if you will. But one of the things that struck me in the, in the first part of it was we'll talk about some others is when they talk about uh, the real estate sector, it's a broad category, right? It's aimed at professionals that work in and sell and buy real estate um, agents, um, lawyers, notaries, real estate developers, title insurers, independent legal professionals, accountants. And those, those professions are covered under other recommendations of FATF. But when we talk about, guidance for the real estate sector it's it's broad as it should be right agreed they also talk emphasize that it's all types of real estate 
right? It's not just industrial or commercial, but it's also residential and agricultural. So they really, they really view, again, this is a risk-based model. So they view the entire space and then, um, you know, talk about how to apply a risk analysis to it so that you zero in on where you need to, as opposed to just assuming all real estate is high risk or conversely, all real estate is low risk. Right. And um, there's a number of charts in the in the guidance that re- reflect uh, the review of that. So uh, the ranking of uh, money laundering risks in the real estate sector, they say 37 percent of countries that are surveyed found the sector to be high, high versus others that are low or medium. That's a pretty high percentage. Right. So that's uh, and then when they talk about the real estate sector's understanding of money laundering and terrorist financing risk, 47% very poor, are poor or very poor, or actually 47%, 31%, so over 70% or eight, almost 80% poor or very poor, which does not surprise me. Now, I would argue that is it their understanding or their willful, to use a legal term, their willful blindness? Yeah, I, um, I, I took uh, those charts caught my eye as well, the exact same statistics that you're quoting. But um, I think some of it is, um, uh, you know, just a perception that uh, the risk is everywhere, but where, where you are kind of a thing. Um, and um, uh, there, there are so many different transaction types um, that would raise red flags. I know um, the guidance talks about a number of them. One that caught my eye, which was not unusual to think of it as high risk, was, was um, where the sources of funds were coming from multiple sources, possibly from multiple jurisdictions, you know, as opposed to um, from a single source. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, I, I think it's interesting. Uh, they recognized that just because real estate transactions, for example, have uh, multiple entities involved, doesn't per se make it high risk, because that is, in fact, how many commercial real estate transactions are structured. Special purpose entities are formed to hold the real estate for a variety of tax planning reasons and things like that. So I, I appreciated the fact that, again, it wasn't, oh, you got a bunch of entities, that just makes it high risk. It's all about evaluating the risk, um, which, uh, and AML um, CFT risk is not necessarily the kind of risk that real estate professionals really think about. So learning how to apply that, those measures will be um, a learning curve. Right, and uh, in addition, they do talk about uh, adding uh, typologies uh, that are, are good examples, as we know, case studies and typologies of types of activities that can be indicative, not necessarily conclusive, but indicative of money laundering. And so a whole host of those are uh, some of these really interesting, from my perspective, use of non-financial professionals, okay, potential red flag, use of corporate vehicles. We've obviously, that's a well-worn area. Unexplained use of virtual assets, obviously bringing those new uh, technologies into this. 
Um, unexplained cash payments. I mean, as we know, there's many cities in the U.S. and then overseas places like London where um, cash purchases of these properties. So there's no mortgages. There's no extensive documentation. Uh, uh, unexplained. So what's going on? Use of client accounts. Um, another typology, which in and of itself sounds innocuous, but uh, I would argue that I think it's good to flag is the construction and renovation of real estate. That happens all the time, right? You're putting something together, you're renovating. Okay, but maybe there's some things you need to check out there. So, you know, I, I think adding those typologies uh, certainly help in terms of training, uh, awareness, all, all the things that are so important to being uh, proactive in this space. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, another thing that is, uh, that they note, and I think is, uh, again, sort of obvious, but not a connection to forget. And that is the fact that in many countries, um, including the U S, um, the availability of accurate up-to-date information about beneficial owners, um, is hard to come by. And so um, as, a, as, as they urge uh, member, member countries to uh, adopt the, these, uh, this approach, they are also at the same time recognizing that they need to adopt a more transparent, more accessible uh, registry or some other methodology for being able to track down beneficial ownership. Because without that, it's very difficult to measure, to accurately measure the risk of the transaction. Right. So there's a lot in here. Obviously, we can't cover it all. Maybe we'll write a blog about this. But uh, toward the end, they talk about examples of what they consider to be supervisory best practices. And I won't say ironically, but I will say it. <laughs> ironically, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, what they call the Estates Agents Authority in Hong Kong. Uh, has adopted a risk-based approach to supervise um, a state agency's policies and procedures. And I think they feel that that's been strong. They said since April of 2020, 60 agencies have been adjusted to lower risk groups as a result of the increase of the AML CFT compliance. Uh, so there's a bunch of examples, but that's one and some other jurisdictions that they, they highlight as well. So there's, there's both, here are the red flags, here are some of the reasons why there's uh, high risk um, categories. And then here's some of the ways in which you can handle this from a regulatory uh, standpoint. So there's a lot of really good information in here. And um, I think, again, both of us have been involved in AML for quite a long period of time. I've always felt that the real estate industry got a pretty easy pass for a long period of time. And maybe this sort of, the report itself won't, but maybe the focus in jurisdictions, like I said, FinCEN's already capturing information on what, what we can do potentially with the real estate industry here that we're not currently doing. Maybe that will improve the due diligence. Uh, you certainly can't say there's not enough resources out there. They do highlight one thing that we do well, and that's geographic targeting orders. So I'd be remiss if I didn't say that. I think the GTOs that have been uh, issued by FinCEN over time have been extremely useful and valuable. So that, that gets called out in the report as a positive supervisory uh, oversight area. Uh, yes, 
Um, so let's see. Uh, what do you have in the hopper? Um, just did an interview the other day that'll get uh, posted the next couple of weeks on the FinCEN and Department of Commerce joint alert on evading export controls, which uh, sounds in the weeds, but actually pretty relevant to everything that's going on, particularly in the Ukraine. So uh, that's, uh, that's going to be out. Um, I have a couple of meetings this week and next. We're hoping, we're hoping in late August, uh, the 25th, I believe, you correct me, Elliot, to do a um, uh, webinar on issues related to, broadly speaking, transparency. So we have some meetings this week with some potential panelists, but the goal would be to explain where there are some uh, gaps in terms of laws and regs and some uh, practical advice on uh, transparency, whether it's dealing with corruption, politically exposed persons, or what have you. So we're still working on that, but that's something to look for uh, toward yeah, the end of the month, end of the month, end of next yeah, month. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the, uh, it's, it's the 26th. Ah, and, uh, and, missed it by that much. That's okay. You're <laughs> all right. And, uh, registration for that, uh, for that webinar will open, uh, uh, actually, uh, Friday when, uh, it'll be open by Friday when you hear this, uh, uh, when you hear this podcast. So, um, so thanks, John. Have a great weekend. And I'm actually going to see you in person. You and I are going to record in person together next week in Buffalo because we have a meeting there. So um, if I don't talk to you before then, I'll see you in Buffalo in a week. Sounds good. Take care. See you. Right. Yep. Bye.